Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face, and he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly, that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming. And our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready? Are you guys ready for me? <laughs> that would be ridiculous, right? <laughs> How we wait for something matters. When we're up here waiting for the video to end and preparing to preach, our minds are not looking at some platform, but in prayer, we're looking ahead to what we're waiting for and praying that God would show up in our time together and open his word of scripture for us. How we wait for something reveals the disposition of our heart towards that thing. So how someone waits for the dentist should be different than how a groom waits for his bride, right? Especially on his wedding day. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but the scripture describes most of the Christian life as a life of waiting. Let me give you a few illustrations. Jesus says, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. James says something similar. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And Paul describes the Christian life this way. He says, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of these are examples of how the church is supposed to be waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And yet, I think if we were honest, most of us struggle to connect the future return of Christ with our everyday life. I think we agree that Jesus is going to return and that he's going to come at a time that we do not expect him, but we're really not sure what that means for our day-to-day. -day. This is a big reason why we're in this series and it's what we're going to be tackling here this morning. So the question that we want to answer together in our time this morning is this, how should waiting for the unexpected return of Christ influence the way that we live? Okay, that's the question we're going to try and answer. Good morning. My name's Tom. I'm one of the elders here at LEFC. 
I'm, uh, I'm joyed to be worshiping together with our visitors from LBC. And thank you for coming here this morning too. If this is your first time with us, we're in a series on Matthew 24. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't, our ushers will be happy to provide you with one. Just flag them down. This morning, we're picking up in uh, Matthew 24, verse 36. And we're going to be reading down through verse 41. Actually, I'm going to go the whole way to verse 44, but our focus today is through 41. We'll be covering 42 through 44 and more in depth next week. But these two, these two passages really go together. So we're going to read them together. So I'm going to start reading in verse 36. And when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, to which I'd ask you respond, thanks be to God, when I, when I wrap up. Okay, so Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. It says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, so right out of the gate, we get the focal point of pretty much the entire chapter. It's found in verse 36, where he says, but about that day. And that day, we're talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. We can pick up clues for this in verse 37, where he says, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, a title for Christ. And again in verse 39, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, some things in life, some events that happen become so significant that certain words get associated with that event in our minds, okay? So for instance, the, um, the, the numbers 9-11, when you put them together, are no longer just numbers, right? They have, they have a deeper meaning. They refer to something greater than what those numbers are. In my house, at least among my kids, if I say the force there are certain bigger concepts that come to mind for them. It has nothing to do with friction or, or gravity or the police, right? The force means something to them. It meant nothing to first service, by the way. So <laughs> in the early church, the word for coming, the word parousia, took on one of these meetings and being, it became inextricably linked to the coming of the Son of Man, the re, to the return of Jesus. We hear this word for the first time in the New Testament. Uh, we read it um, weeks ago when we started in September in verse 3 of chapter 24, which I'll read here. This is when the disciples, they kick off this entire teaching of Jesus by asking a few simple questions. They say, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming, of your parousia, and of the end of the age? 
We saw this word again last week when we read verse, verse 27, which says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so it will be at the coming, at the parousia of the Son of Man. And as the church meditated on this teaching from Jesus in the years that followed, his return simply became known as the coming, okay? The parousia, and the church would know what that meant. And like anything that takes on this kind of significance in, in, a, in a culture, in a life of a people, their vocabulary and phrases start to kind of uh, form around, around this. So in the example of my home, may the force be with you, is something that became common terminology, even among non-Jedis, all right? <laughs> in, the, in the early church, the phrase Maranatha took on this sort of meaning, which means, come Lord Jesus. We see this phrase show up even in Scripture, which was written very early in the, in the time of the early church, where Paul ends one of his letters with this phrase Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And then last week, we read a slight variation of this from the book of Revelation. The second to last book, or the, the second to last verse in the last book, where Jesus says, I'm coming again soon, to which John replies, amen, come Lord Jesus. So the early church lived with this Maranatha mindset, this mindset of looking forward to the return of Christ. So when the disciples asked Jesus early on here in verse 3, when they asked him about what is the time and the sign of your coming, for once they were actually on the right path, right? They were asking a good question here because they were starting to get the sense that this would be important for the church, now, if you've been with us the last two months, Jesus has took a little bit of a meandering course in answering this question, right? He's talked about deceivers, false messiahs, the destruction of Jerusalem. But here, finally, he's going to get into it. He's going to give them the answer. When are you going to return? So the disciples are ready for it. They've been waiting for it. And Jesus says, I don't know. He says, I don't know, verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Okay, now I know for some of us, the idea of the omniscient son of God, not knowing something can cause a little bit of confusion, um, something that we want to dig further deeper into. And so what we've actually done, I'm not going to dig into that today because quite frankly, it would take our entire time together. Um, and it's not really the point of the text that we're in. But if this question is raised in your mind, two of our in-house teachers, a mother and a daughter, have actually prepared a short video where they discuss and dialogue over this mystery. And it really is a mystery. You won't leave this morning or that video knowing like this is the answer of how it's gonna work because it is beyond human understanding, but they will at least give you some, some guidelines in how to discuss and engage with this. So I'd encourage you, if you um, talk about service with your kids during lunch, or if you do with your life group, um, you can check that video out. There's a link in, or in a QR code maybe in your discussion guide that's in your bulletin. That'll direct you to that video. Video. But for our purposes this morning, what we really want to take away from this is that if even the Son of God said that he did not know when he would be coming back, and just to be clear, I believe he does know now, but when he walked on earth, if even he didn't know when he would be coming back, 
then there hasn't ever been, nor will there ever be anybody who knows when Jesus is gonna return. So if ever you hear an argument saying someone, I think I know when he's coming back, you can clearly say, well, Jesus didn't even know what makes you so special, right? It's a, you can end that argument very quickly here. Um, so that's really what our takeaway is as we move into the text. And the other question that the disciples ask, if you remember, they weren't just asking about like the time that Jesus was coming. They also want to know like, what were some of the signs, Jesus? How are we gonna know that you're coming back? And so Jesus says, all right, you want signs of my return? Let me give you some signs. Well, there's going to be eating. You can see the disciples like, okay, and drinking, and some people will be getting married. Oh, I forgot. Okay, yeah, fine. What is, what's the last thing? People were going to be working at the mill and in the field. You can just feel the disciples' disappointment here. He's, he's describing, after all this time we've been walking through, talking about the last days, where he describes the age that we live in and comparing it to a woman in labor, which is pretty extreme from what I've seen. <laughs> here, he, here he chooses to describe the days leading up to his coming as ordinary days. And so I think what has happened as is these ordinary days, they've turned into ordinary weeks and the weeks have accumulated into years. And there's been years of ordinary days turned into centuries and centuries into millennia that the, the church through all this ordinariness has started to lose a bit of that Maranatha, come Lord Jesus mindset. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to ask that God would rekindle this in us. He wanted his church to live in anticipation of his coming. So would you just pause and pray with me as we ask God to, to open the eyes of our heart to see the truth of this in our everyday life this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is not something that we will see or comprehend on our own, Lord. Would you open your word to us this morning? Give us eyes to see and a heart to feel the true reality that all that we see around us is simply a shadow of something much greater to come when your son returns and brings to fulfillment all of the things that he started when he was here the first time, Lord. Allow us to see your truth, to hear your voice this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So from this point forward in Matthew 24 and through 25, which is the, the, the Mount, his discourse on the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins to pivot a little bit in his teaching. We're going to see in coming weeks that he begins to start using sorting language. In other words, the separation of mankind into two different groups. It's not the first time he's done this um, in, in recorded in Matthew. We see in Matthew 13 that he, he uses this kind of language before where he talks about mankind being sorted into wheat and weeds. He also uses the parable of mankind being sorted into good and bad fish. Later in chapter 24, we're going to see him talk about faithful and unfaithful servants. We've already discussed the beginning of chapter 25 where he talks about the wise and the foolish virgins. Then we'll get into the... the um, 
the, the workers who are either diligent or they're lazy. And then finally, the last parable he uses to talk about the sorting of mankind that will happen when he comes again as goats and sheep. Now, it's, it's interesting here that he uses parables in all of these different places. And yet, and yet here in our text, specifically in verse 40, we actually get to have a snapshot of what this is really going to look like on earth, not speaking in parable. Read verse 40 and 41 with me. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Now, he is intentional. Jesus is always intentional in the way that he describes things as he's teaching. So he chooses here. He doesn't describe mankind, these two groups, as living. One will be working at the mill. The other one, faithfully attending life group. He doesn't say one man will be in a field. The other one, serving as a deacon. No, he intentionally chooses language here to show that when he returns, the church is going to be all mixed up with the world. The sorting doesn't happen now. The sorting comes when he returns. And this has implications for us. Because for those of us who are out in the world, which is everyone here working in the world, in the, in the terminology of Jesus' parable, we are like wheat in the midst of, of a, a world of weeds that sees no spiritual value in anything that we do. And the danger for us then is as we live in this world, ordinary day after day, year after year, that we start to lose the, the real spiritual value in everything that we do. And so as we're seeking to have this mindset of living expectantly for Christ to return, it's important that we see his hand at work in all that we do. Otherwise, we will go through stretches of days and of weeks where our thoughts don't turn to him. So this morning, I thought it would be helpful if we just take a quick look at some of the ordinary things described here in this passage and remind ourselves what the spiritual value of those things are, okay? So the first one we want to look at together here is, is eating and drinking. What is the spiritual value of eating and drinking? Well, maybe a good place to start would be where God created eating and drinking, which is back in Genesis before the fall. Genesis 1.29 says this, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. You see, food was a gift from God to mankind. Now here it's described as um, we're getting plants to eat. It's revealed later that we also get meat. This is what scripture calls progressive revelation, right? Things, the greater things come later. So, but here we, here we see that God has given mankind food. And it's for a purpose. He designed us to need food. He didn't have to design the world this way, but he designs this world, the world this way. So we need to ask, why did God design the world, mankind, to need food in order to survive? For that, let's turn to Psalm 145. It'll be on the screen. It says, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. 
You see, food is part of the way that God relates to his creation. It's how he designed it. At the most fundamental level, he is keeping us alive, right? This is common grace for all of mankind in order to sustain us. And then maybe one notch above that, it's common grace in that there is delight and enjoyment to be found in food. But can you see when we're hungry for food, where our eyes are supposed to look? Where are we supposed to look for our food? Now, I'm sure there's some teens in the room here that are thinking, well, when I'm hungry, I look in the fridge. That's where food comes from. But he is saying something a little bit deeper than this, if you can track with me. He is saying when we desire food, it can turn our eyes to look to him, the giver of the food, which is exactly what Jesus modeled when he was here on earth. We see him time and time again giving thanks for the food before he ate it, acknowledging that this food is not primarily the work of man, but it comes from the hand of God. This is some of the spiritual value we can find when we eat. What about work? Well, like food, work was created by God for man before the fall. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, to be sure, the labor of man was later cursed. I'm sure most of us feel that. But the work itself was not the curse. And of course, it couldn't be. Because as people who are made in the image of God, we see from Genesis the whole way through Scripture that God works. And so we're made in his image, and in his image then we work too. This is part of how we reflect his nature. So then how might the wise and faithful servants that people talked about in this passage here, how might they view their work? Consider this other psalm from Psalm 127, verse 1, where David says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. So follow what God is revealing here. He is saying, well, there's some things that God does by himself, like create the whole universe. And then there's other things that men do, meaningful things that men do, that, that men do, that God is involved in. Things ranging from building a house to policing a city. What God is saying is that God works, man works, and that God works through man. Can you see that here? God's involved in our work. He is reflected and imaged in our work, but he is also involved in it. And so as you work, as you consider your work from this past week, do you consider the hand of God in the work that you were doing? And it doesn't need to be glorious work. One of my heroes, Martin Luther, describes it this way. He says, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other menial task for his child in the Christian faith, God with all his angels and creatures is smiling, not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in the Christian faith. You see all work from the CEO down to the foster parent who has no title, pay, or praise. All work can glorify God because it's what we are doing in his image. 
And if you want to learn how to walk with your spiritual eyes open, the first step is to ask God to show him his hand at work in everything that we're doing. And I could go further. We could talk about relationships, family, friendship. Um, I'm just trying to lay a foundation for you to show you that in everything that God has designed is designed with a purpose and he works through it. There is spiritual value to everything that we do in life. What comes into focus next in our text, though, is not so much what people will be doing, but when they're going to be doing it. You see, Jesus doesn't say that we're going to be eating and drinking like we were last week. He doesn't say people will be marrying and giving in marriage like they were in the days of David. No, his time period here is intentional. Verse 37 says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. You see, as people ate and drank in the days of Noah, they were doing so with judgment on the horizon. You know, we just finished talking about all the good things that were given to Adam. But after that, Adam sinned. And as people multiplied on the earth, the sin multiplied on the earth. And eventually the sin became so great that it provoked God to wrath, which is what we read in Genesis 6, which says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then Jesus tells us that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days. Paul confirms this in his letter to Timothy saying, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And look at how he describes terrible. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You see, mankind will still be doing ordinary things. Mankind will be eating and drinking, but instead of the food turning their eyes towards God, they will see it as an end in itself. It's simply a, a, a way to find pleasure or a sense of control in life. They will eat either too much of it or they'll eat too little of it. They won't be thankful for it. They will use it to escape from their anxiety and their worry. When it comes to work, people will either love their work above all else or they will despise it. They will see it as a source of pride or of wealth or a source of oppression not as a gift from God. Relationships will be poisoned. It will be acceptable to break the marriage covenant through divorce. People will come into marriage with their mind already polluted by corrupt ideas and wicked images. They will either fantasize about adultery or they will outright pursue it. And even outside of marriage, People will look at images and find pleasure in looking at images of women who are all objectified, many abused, 
and often trafficked. Do you feel like we should start keeping a better watch? You see, everything given by God to man to point man to God has been corrupted by sinful man. The master gave the servants all of his possessions and they used it for wickedness. What do you think is going to happen next? There's only one righteous response. The last days will be like the days of Noah. In 2 Peter, God describes it as, he says, by these waters, talking about the floodwaters of Noah, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And look at what it says here in verse 39. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. It should prick our hearts that today there are millions in Vietnam and in Myanmar who know nothing about what is coming. They live totally unaffected by this reality. And we could go around the globe. There are millions in Asia, millions in Africa, South America, Europe, Australia, New York City, our own communities, who live totally unaffected by this reality. They know nothing. Maybe you have been living totally unaffected by this reality. But the Lord has started to open your eyes. God has been working to help you see that when final judgment comes, and it will come as a surprise, it will be unexpected, that the only righteous response to your sin and your corruption is wrath. To you, God says this. By faith... Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. You see, by faith, Noah believed both the warning from God and his plan for salvation. And so he expressed his belief by going out, collecting wood, and building a wooden ark. Today, we express our belief by trusting in the one who came to provide an atoning sacrifice for us by hanging on a wooden cross. You see, Jesus, who we're talking about coming again, has already come once. He's come in the likeness of man. He lived a perfect life among all the corruption that we live in. And he was put to death by wicked men. But all of this was according to the plan of God in order to provide an atoning sacrifice to satisfy the debt that we will all owe at judgment when Christ returns. And so God says, repent of your sins and be baptized. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. 
If you've been living totally unaffected by this reality, I encourage you and implore you with the words of John Owen, speaking the heart of Jesus. He says, why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure or your hands be strong in the day of wrath that's approaching? Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you all your sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest to your soul. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me that you would rather perish than, be, than accept deliverance by me. And so the time to act in faith is now because when the Lord comes unexpectedly, it will be too late. But perhaps you have put your faith in Christ. So how should the unexpected return of Jesus influence the way that you live? Well, there's two answers we can find in the life of Noah to this question. And the first is simple. It's to share the message that we're talking about this morning with other people. You see, Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. And, his, and the disciples of Jesus were encouraged to the very same thing. You see, right before the ascension, okay, last time that the disciples see Jesus on earth, they found themselves in a familiar place. They were with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And at this time, again, they had the right thing in mind. They asked Jesus, is now the time? Is now the time that you're going to establish your kingdom? What a holy desire they had in asking this question. But Jesus gives them a different answer. Here, he says, it's not for you to know the time. Notice he doesn't say it's not for me. I think he knows. But he says, it's not for you to know the time. Instead, be my witnesses. I am going to give you power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. You want my kingdom to come? Last time we were here, I told you what's going to bring it about. I told you the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. So this is the first way that's supposed to influence our lives as we seek and yearn for the coming of Christ. We participate in its coming as the church, as we bring the gospel out to the nations. But we need to go one step further because we're not just supposed to speak of righteousness, but we are supposed to live out righteousness. How we wait matters. How we wait for something or someone reveals the disposition of our heart towards that thing. Noah waited in a corrupt world for over 600 years before the flood, and he waited righteously in that time. As wheat in a world full of weeds, we feel the current pulling us, right? The desire to go back to our old ways of thinking and of living. It's a battle that we live every day, which is why God tells us in Ephesians that we are to wake up and not live as unwise, but as wise. Why? 
because the days are evil. To be unwise is to forget who we're waiting for. To forget that the Son of Man will be coming, and when he comes, he is going to bring both judgment and also the hope of new creation. And this reality should influence every aspect of our life, how we eat and drink, how we live, how we work, how we relate with other people. We're to do so righteously in the model of our pioneer, Jesus Christ. We're warned to stay awake. I like the way that D.A. Carson puts the tension of the world that we live in. He says it this way. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort. That's such a great phrase. Grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, or delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. As a waiting people in the midst of a broken world, you should feel this. I feel these things every single day. So how do we persevere in a corrupt world like the one we find ourselves in? What D.A. Carson calls grace-driven effort, the author of Hebrews calls fixing your eyes on Jesus, the one who's to come. Let me read for you, for you from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and just to point out, one of those witnesses from chapter 11 in Hebrews is Noah, okay? His testimony and example. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. This is pretty violent language. Those things that keep us from waiting well. God doesn't just say to, to you set these distractions aside or, or maybe toss them a little bit further away. He says throw them off. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And so as we move into a time of reflection here, where we're going to sing a song that has to do with surrender. This is a time for you to evaluate those things that are hindering you, distracting you, causing you not to wait well. And turn and fix your eyes on Jesus. Maybe you need to put your trust in Jesus for salvation. If that's you, I would encourage you and implore you, put off all procrastination. Use this time to speak with God in prayer, maybe with somebody around you. Or maybe you need to learn to be a witness, to ask God to give you that Holy Spirit power to be his witness and share the gospel. 
Use this time as an opportunity to ask him for clarity of message, opportunity, and also boldness. Ask him who. Maybe ask him where. And lastly, if you start to drift back into old ways of living, into patterns of sin, maybe you start to feel pretty comfortable here. For you, I would encourage you to spend this time thinking through what you need to throw off. Repentance is not a one-time thing. This is something that reoccurs in the life of a believer. It's a part of our everyday life. So maybe use this as an opportunity to confess those things that the Lord has put on your heart and repent and turn away from them. Surrender your will back to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is alive. It shows us true reality when so often we get pulled into the noise of everyday life. Thank you for these times you designed for your church to reorient our heart back to you, to look to you, to ask your spirit to show us where you're leading and guiding us, that we can live life, a life of purpose and meaning with our eyes set on the, on the event, the coming, that it would be a joy for us and not something that we need to fear. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Here is where I lay it down. Every burden, every crown. This is my surrender. This is my surrender. Here is where I lay it down. Every lie and every doubt. This is my surrender. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. To do whatever you want to And I will make room for you To do whatever you want to Lord, do whatever you want to
In Jewish culture, that's a great ending. In, uh, in Jewish culture, uh, the, the betrothment period, the engagement period was called the Kedushin, okay? And this is after the engagement. It worked a little bit different than it does today. After engagement, the groom would go back to his father's house and he would prepare a room for him and his bride. And, and it was up to the father to determine when the room was ready, and then the groom would go back and get his bride. And so when Jesus is talking to his disciples saying, the father knows he's using marriage language here. We've been talking about judgment, but don't miss that Christ's return is a return for his bride, the church. And so that's how we live. That's what our hope is set on. Because for the church, his return is glorious. It's the consummation of everything that has been promised. In Isaiah, we hear this time described. Isaiah 25 describes Christ's return and his uniting with his bride, the church, like this. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, 
the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So I leave you with that. Go in peace. You are dismissed.